beginning at verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. This is God's Word. Let's pray again. Father, please, through Your Spirit, continue with us and teach us. Help us to see Your ways. Lord, increase in us a love for first You and Your Son, and secondly, a love for Your ways. Increase in us a love for holiness, a desire to be like the man Christ Jesus. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. We're considering, you'll remember, a very simple truth, and that is that the church is distinguished from the world. Taking our doctrine from the vision given to John of measuring the temple of God there, we learn a theological truth that God has Himself marked us off and separated us from the common mass of humanity. This is why the Holy Spirit has chosen to use the word church, called out, assembly, gathering, congregation. As I've said many times, you are not the church. We are the church, the assembly, the gathering of the people of God. We saw last week we are distinguished or have been distinguished by God from eternity. We're distinguished in time through the work of Christ in His death, reconciling us to God, the work of the Spirit, applying that redemption to us in our lifetimes. And we're distinguished by God even unto eternity where we will spend eternity with Him as we just heard. The wicked will not be there. We saw last week the second point that we have also been distinguished internally, that is according to the inner man through the work of regeneration. The language of Ezekiel, we have been washed with clean water. God has put His Spirit within us. He's given us a new heart. Uh, the language, that language confirmed by Christ when He said, you must be born of water and the Spirit. In this work of God, and this was the point that I made last week, in this work of God, there is a radical reorientation of the entire inner man by the Spirit of God to the extent that every faculty of the inner life is instantly altered in its fundamental framework. The intellect, the affections, and the will, all of them at the moment of regeneration, instantly changed. We go from, in that instant every intention of the thoughts of our heart being only evil continually to, Colossians 3, the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We have a new self, a new creation. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The faculties of the soul are now functioning 
from the divine principle, which is the Spirit of God dwelling within us. The very life of God, also known as the Holy Spirit, becomes the life principle of the new creation in the child of God. This is why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 4.16, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So those are the first two points in this two-part sermon. We are distinguished from the world. Number one, God is the one who does it. Point number two, He does it first inwardly. So now we come to point number three. We are distinguished externally. This is where we'll spend our time today. We are distinguished externally. Ben apologized for going long. Uh, I'm going to make it make that seem like not that big of a deal this morning. I probably am going to read more than normal so that we can attempt to main, maintain something of a schedule. We are distinguished externally. Because God is a complete Redeemer, and because the subjects of this redemption are human beings then the distinguishing work cannot stop at what takes place in the inner man. In other words, the very nature of man and the nature of redemption necessitate that any true change in the hidden person will produce external, visible results. The true Christian cannot help but be different inside and out when I say outside, I mean in their external participation with the world outside of us. To put it another way, because the Christian thinks differently, is affected differently, and wills according to the nature of the Spirit of God within him, then the product of that is going to look very different than those around him who have not undergone that inner work. Or to put it as, as simply as I possibly can, if you are a Christian, you will act different than those who are not Christians. Again, this is rooted in two things. The nature of man and the nature of redemption. Consider the nature of man. We are constituted by God, human beings, body, soul, entities. There are two parts to us. We are like our father Adam, created from the dust of the earth. There you have a body. And then the Spirit of God breathes into that and makes a human being. The soul or spirit, the inner man, the non-physical you, and then the body, the outer man, the, the physical self. And God has constituted mankind in these, in these two different parts in such a way that they cannot but function in relation to each other. Things that are external to us cause internal changes. And things that happen within us cause external changes. For example, ladies, if you see with your eyes, observe outside of you a masked gunman in a dark parking lot at the grocery store, when you're by yourself, something happens inside of you. You become afraid. If you see a long-lost friend, you become happy. On the other side of that, if you become sorrowful in your soul inside, then your physical tear ducts will produce water. They'll come out of your eyes. If you get nervous sometimes, you feel sick to your stomach, maybe even vomit, or maybe your palms get sweaty. That which is in you begins to come out. That which is outside of us affects us inwardly. To use an objective illustration, our Lord, in sorrow, in His soul to the point of death. And what happens? The capillaries burst and He sweats drops of blood. 
The body-soul constitution of man implies that changes in the soul will of necessity affect the body, the actions, the things you do, the things that you don't do. And so if there's been this radical reorientation of every faculty of the soul, then the manifestation of that is going to be seen in the way you act, the way you live because of the nature of man. But also consider the nature of redemption. God's intention is not simply to save the soul. His intention is to redeem the whole man. It does begin with the inner man. The inner work is manifested then by the outer man. Redemption is completed in a new body. We're not glorified when we die. We're glorified when we get a new body. When Christ is finally glorified, that's when we are glorified. Use the language of the apostle Paul, the perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. Now that's still to come, but it is a part of redemption. And even though that is still to come, the inner workings of the redeemed soul play themselves out now on the theater of our physical flesh. So this is why the apostle can say in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that your bodies, physical bodies, are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! He goes on to say, But he who is joined to the Lord, think of the irony of this, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with Him, period, flee sexual immorality. Think of the irony there. We have entered into a spiritual union with Christ, His Spirit dwelling in our mortal bodies, so stop using your mortal bodies, your your flesh, for immorality. And so we don't believe that the mortal body is a throwaway body. It's not like a disposable camera that you use it and trash it. We don't believe that all that matters is the soul of a man. We don't believe that all that matters is that you believe right doctrine. That's not enough. What you do in the flesh with your physical body as it interacts with the world around you is important. The nature of man and the nature of redemption necessitate that what God has done and is doing inside a man will produce changes in the way that he interacts with the world around him, his actions. And we see all of that come together in 2 Corinthians 7.1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves of every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. What's he saying? In light of the promise of God's personal dwelling and walking amongst His people in the New Testament church, the fulfillment of promises given in Leviticus 26 and Isaiah 52, we as Christians are to cleanse ourselves of defilement. Not just spiritual defilement. Defilements of body and spirit. And in so doing, we bring holiness to completion. What is complete holiness? Cleansing of the body and the spirit. The the external and the internal. The material and the immaterial. And why is that? Verse 16, we are the temple of the living God. So then having been distinguished by God internally, we have to assume, based on the nature of man, the nature of redemption, That this radical reorientation is going to produce fruit in our lives. And because we are distinguished in that, then that fruit is going to look different than people who have not experienced that work of God. We're going to look different than them. Now does the Bible 
teach this, this complete teaching? Does the Bible teach this or does the Bible simply teach that we should expect an unquantifiable, unverifiable, indiscernible, goodness I hope so, just take my word for it, baptize me on a profession of faith, salvation. 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul says, What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? He phrases it in the form of a rhetorical question. It doesn't work. Light and darkness don't mix. There's no fellowship there. We do not have fellowship with darkness. Ephesians 5.11, here's a command. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Don't do it. Here's perhaps even more astonishing. 1 Peter 4.4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same slut of debauchery and they malign you. What's Peter saying? Even unregenerate men can look at Christians and say, that person's different. They notice that we don't live like them and they malign us. Lost people can tell a difference. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, what? To keep oneself unstained from the world. Religion, the outworking of the internal change, pure and undefiled, is doing things and not doing things. Take care of widows and orphans and keep yourself unstained. Don't become stained by the world. That's what Christianity inside looks like when it comes out. Again, there's no such thing as an I'm not sure if she's a Christian. Christian. The nature of man and the nature of redemption as well as the promises of God necessitate both an internal and an external visible change. Now what comes to our mind? What about false converts? What What about fake professors? That proves the point. That the change is so clearly enumerated in Scripture, so obviously promised in Scripture, that unregenerate men can fake the outward thing. That doesn't prove that truly regenerate men can conceal the real thing because it's so clear, it's so obvious, it's, so, it's, it's promised. As we just heard, it's promised. Either God is a liar or Christians look different than the world. But what do we also know to be true? Neither the inner change nor the outer change is completed in this life. Remember those texts that I used last week, Romans 12 too, Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Ephesians 4, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Colossians 3, set your minds on things that are above. These commands assume that there is more work to be done. Although regeneration takes place in a moment, and there is in that moment a radical reorientation, that doesn't mean that the entire work is completed internally or externally. There's more work to be done. So the question is, how is that work performed? How is it done? How is it that we are renewed and transformed inwardly so that we produce outwardly the distinction that God has made in us? By what means has God ordained that the inner man be brought along so that the outer man is also affected? Hopefully you know the answer. It's the Word of God effectually applied by the Spirit of God. 
the renewal of your minds, the transformation of your person will be directly related to your interaction with the Scriptures. Directly related. The ongoing outward manifestation of the ongoing internal change are the direct effects of one's relationship to the Word of God and the Spirit's application of the Word of God. We know that the initial interchange happened by the Word and Spirit, right? You were, you were born again through the living and abiding Word of God. We also know that the process of, of transformation and re- renewal, sanctification continues through Word and Spirit. Sanctify them by the truth. Your Word is truth. The visible fruit of the invisible change is inextricably tethered to the Word of God. The Word of God. Summarize all of that. How is it that we become practically distinguished from the world? We, we, we grit our teeth real hard and just do it even though we don't really want to? No. It's by the application of the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, in every area of life. Every area of life. Now at this point, I've got a few options. I could set out to list every situation, scenario, circumstance, and action that, will, that any of us will ever have to take in this life. I can then go to the Scriptures and tell you what to do in all of those circumstances, and we could just compile a big list for all of us of do's and don'ts that we just check every week when we come in here. Or, I could attempt to set before you a biblical lens through which each of us can begin to view the world and our actions in it. In other words, I could try to paint for you an alternative worldview. My options are I could give you a fish or I could teach you to fish. I think it would be a better use of our time to teach you to fish. And I, I believe that that is actually the, the best approach, an alternative worldview, because I believe the reason that the saints of God are not more often and more drastically distinguished from the world is because we don't have the right worldview. We've not gone far enough. Yeah, even in this room. We've not gone far enough. The average professing Christian operates off of the following principle. I'm going to go on doing what everyone else is doing. I'm going to go on doing the things that I had planned, the things that I have assumed were acceptable, the things that pass as normal in society. I will continue going that way until I find in the Bible an explicit, clear-cut reason for why I shouldn't do what everyone else is doing, what I had planned, what I have assumed, what is acceptable, what passes as normal in society, That reason, when I find it in the Scriptures, it must be indisputable and I must be the one who determines that it is indisputable or I am at liberty to excuse it as not applicable to me. That's the average evangelical worldview. I've become a Christian, so what do I do? Just just keep riding. Just keep riding the flow, just like you were. And once we get to some place in Scripture, then we'll begin to argue about how we should approach this or that. Because we've been conditioned to believe that what we see in our society is a fairly decent 
model of morality. That, that in our present culture, we're actually pretty close to what God expects of people. So no need to ruffle your feathers about di- diverting too much. Just keep with the flow. We assume the presence of a particular thing validates the goodness of that thing because we're so advanced, right? We assume, surely, if this thing exists, we wouldn't allow it to continue to exist if it was really that wicked, although we don't even know the difference between a man and a woman, but, but everything else, we're, we're actually pretty close. Now, we wouldn't say that. We wouldn't say, because two dudes can get married, therefore it must be acceptable, right? Because we're, we're Christians. We're at church, and, and we're not as debased as people who would agree with that. But we will say things like this. Because this job is an option, it must be acceptable. Because this outfit exists, it must be acceptable to buy it and then to wear it. Because television exists, it must be fine to stare at it. Because the couch is present in my home, it must be fine to veg out for a few hours. Because the kids are young, it must be fine for them to ignore basic table manners. Because the restaurant exists, and I'm tired, it must be acceptable to grab supper. Now, stay with me because I didn't say anything, any of those things were inherently sinful. But if I challenged you on one of those things, those things that we consider, that we, we think they're sort of morally neutral, you know, that moral neutral ground that doesn't exist in God's world, but we exist, we, we, we treat them as they are. If I challenge you on one of those types of things, what is the typical response? Well, the Bible doesn't say I can't. Or chapter and verse, please. As if the Bible was written to satisfy the carnal, speculative, circumstantial musings of 21st century Americans. Right? The Bible doesn't say, I can't wear high heels. Well, actually, the Bible says that men shouldn't wear women's clothing. Well, the Bible doesn't say high heels are women's clothing. Right? Well, this culture, in our culture, we just sort of understand that that's women's clothing. Right? Well, that's a cultural argument. That's not a scriptural argument. You see how we treat the scriptures as if God has come along to tell us everything we ought not to do, assuming that everything that we're doing is right until He tells us. In an attempt to sound spiritual, we show, number one, our immaturity, and number two, our misunderstanding of what the Bible is. This idea that the Bible doesn't say, I can't, is the reasoning of an eight-year-old, not a spirit-filled saint. The Bible isn't just the book that tells us what not to do. It's the starting place for what we should do. It is assumed in the Word of God that if you adopt this worldview, do everything He says to do, and I don't have to tell you all the things not to do. I've already told you positively when I told you all the things to do. Can you see the difference? There's, there's a launching, a starting point, and then there is a, a, just a, a come to it every now and then to verify the things that I'm doing because I've already planned what I'm going to do. There is a reason that you very often hear new believers digging into and devouring the Word of God. Especially when they come to to Christ at a time when they can actually read and think and and are, are observing the world. They come to the Scriptures and they begin to devour it. And it's not because they just want to be smart. It's because the Spirit of God leads His people to 
know that God's Word and not their culture must be the bedrock of their worldview. They've been radically reoriented. We as believers start with the Bible, not what we're accustomed to, not what everybody else is doing, not what's easiest, not what makes the most sense given the times in which we live. A true Christian is very often made sensible pretty early on to the fact that what they are accustomed to is probably wrong. We're not under the impression that what we are accustomed to is more than likely appropriate. And this is because one of the core revelations of the Spirit in the work of regeneration and sanctification is the revelation of the depravity of mankind and the utter bankruptcy of the Spirit of the age. The Spirit of God implants in the soul of a man a natural caution and skepticism toward everything common, everything normal, everything acceptable in a given society. Skepticism. It's the evolutionary model that says mankind is advancing and is probably right on the mark. Right? We're getting better and better. That's evolution. It's the Christian worldview that says that man is wicked, plummeting further and further into that wickedness with every generation. We're getting worse, not better. So you you understand the irony when people come to the Scriptures and they say, well, that was just their culture. Right, and that one was probably better. We're not getting better. We haven't attained to something they haven't attained to. We're getting worse. And so given this unbiblical worldview that pervades much of even Christian thinking, what do we typically do? We expect that for the most part, we go on with the flow of human reasoning and societal normalcy until such a time as God, in His providence, directly, explicitly, undeniably, and according to my judgment, tells me that I should not go that way. Right? God opened a door. i got to go through the door. God shut the door. So we say, chapter and verse, please. Chapter and verse, please. You know what that's saying? That's saying, God, I dare you to challenge my Adamic worldview. Show me a text that says I have to stop. Until you do, I'm going to keep going. Rather than starting with the Word of God. We're like a toddler walking down toward the highway from a house on the hill, just trotting along, plop, 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 because, because we're, gravity is pulling us that way. Now what does this tend to produce? At best, this produces in many cases, true believers, attempting to live some sort of mishmash conglomeration of Christianity and secularism. And we get ourselves into practical, that is in the way that we lived our lives, we get ourselves into a practical limbo, constantly trying to Christianize everything that we're doing. We beat our heads against the wall of Scripture trying to find some peace between the two. We distort and twist Scripture to justify and defend everything that we do. We live in a constant state of unmet expectations with very little joy and very little peace. If you're really spiritual, very often you'll just be volleying back and forth between what you're doing and what the Scriptures say, trying to find peace there. You've seen these people paddleboarding on the, in the water. It's like you've got your feet on two different boards and you're trying to make it work. You're never at rest. There's no solid footing there. The less mature will just create new doctrines to justify their actions, to justify why they aren't actually different from the world, to explain new doctrines that explain why they are distinguished, 
but really only as to their thinking and their feeling and their private beliefs. It's, all, it's an inner difference. And on occasion when they talk about what they believe. But other than that, you look at them and you look at the world and they look exactly like the world. Other than, for the most part, a few hours on Sunday, if they've decided that there's something significant about the first day of the week and they have blessed it and made it holy. What's the problem? The problem is their worldview. They don't believe that man is depraved, that they are depraved. They don't believe men are full of darkness and ignorance. They don't believe that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, not the tag team partner of carnal wisdom. They don't believe they're getting worse. They believe we're getting better. They don't believe Christ actually demands lordship over every detail of their lives. Now, now if they're Calvinists or in the Reformed camp, then they'll usually will spout Kyperianisms. You know, there is not one square inch in all of the universe where the Lord Jesus Christ, who is King, doesn't say mine. But they, they don't mean one square inch of their lives. They don't mean every spare minute of their day. Christ is Lord of Neptune and Mars, but not Lord of Saturday morning. He tells the ocean where to stop, but not my debit card. He makes the deer give birth, but He doesn't have much of a say in my personal relationships. That's my business. What, what do we need? We need a new worldview. We need, we need to just rethink the whole thing. And really, we need to be convinced that God's Word is our starting place. A starting place. Consider this passage from Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4. You keep Him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because He trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Do you want to know why, church, that you're not at perfect peace? Because your mind is not stayed on Him. You're not trusting in God. You don't believe that God is an everlasting rock. You don't believe that if you would just stand upon Him, you cannot be moved. If you believed it, His Word would be your starting place, not your pit stop. So here's the principle. And I'll elaborate on it as I, I continue. The Christian, having had their inner man radically reoriented, is now oriented towards and nourished by the mind of God revealed in the Scriptures. God sets the pace. God's revelation drives the ship. In other words, again, we start with God's Word rather than deferring to God's Word after having started with our natural presuppositions and found ourselves in a mess. Remember, we, we looked at Isaiah 8.20. To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. What's he saying? He's saying the person with the, the least bit of spiritual light, the, the bottom of the barrel, I mean, it, 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 the, the sun isn't over the horizon yet. The sky is, is blue. That person has this fundamental worldview. Make a beeline for the word of God. Start there. Get to the Word. And trust in the Word. The least bit of spiritual formation produces that. And then back to our text that I read at the beginning in Proverbs 3. Picture the worldview that is set forth in this text. Trust in the Lord with all your heart 
And do not lean on, on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Notice negatively. Do not lean on your own understanding. Don't do it. It's a command. Imperative. Don't. Don't lean on your own understanding. Now we, we get understanding, intellectual, formative information. We, we get understanding from one of two places. God or not God. If it's your own understanding, it's everything not God. Do not lean on that. Another command. Be not wise in your own eyes. Don't consider yourself to be the source of wisdom or any other man. But positively, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Absolute, undivided allegiance and dependence upon God. And in all your ways, acknowledge Him. Now this acknowledging is not giving a hat tip to God or looking over your shoulder and reminding, well, yeah, yeah, God, yeah, I forgot you were here. That's not what this means. This means bringing God and His Word into the process of every action, every single act in all your ways. And this is nothing more than the worldview of the psalmist. Psalm 119, verse 6, Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. Eyes fixed on what? Most of the commandments of God. No, all of your commandments. Verse 10, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. With, with, a, with a partial devotion I seek... No, with your whole heart, seek God. Verse 20, Listen to these words. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Think of this worldview. Consumed. Longing. Most of the time. No. All times. For what? Your rules. Your word. Is that your worldview? Turn to Numbers chapter 9. A practical illustration, I think, does more to instruct even some of these clear statements because if we're honest, most of us are here in this room because we believe that this is already our worldview. But, but I wonder if it actually is. I wonder if you're, you're getting how far I'm going. So we're going to use an Old, Old Testament illustration. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says, speaking specifically of the wilderness activities of the children of Israel, that these things happened to them as an example, and they were written down for our instruction, upon whom the end of the ages has come. So why did these things happen to them? Well, it was an example. Why do we need a record of it? So that we can be instructed by their example. So let's take Israel as a nation. They've been rescued from slavery in Egypt. And this is going to be an example of how the believer, ransomed from sin, ransomed from bondage to death, how we ought to live in light of having been redeemed. And I want you to read this, and I want you to picture what this would look like in the life of a person. 
Beginning at verse 17 of Numbers chapter 9. Whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out, and at the command of the Lord they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, there they remained in the camp. But even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, the people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle, and according to the command of the Lord they remained in camp. Then according to the command of the Lord they set out. And sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning. And when the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out. Or if it continued for a day and a night when the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a longer time, then that the cloud continued over the tabernacle abiding there. The people of Israel remained in the camp and did not set out. But when it lifted, they set out. At the command of the Lord they camped, and at the command of the Lord they set out. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. Now, now what is the cloud? It's the presence of God, the manifest revelation of God Himself leading them. And how was it that they were to travel? Step by step, with the Lord always in the front. When He moved, they moved. When He stopped, they stopped. Even if it was only for a night. Imagine the, the, uh, the, the Merarites, the Gershonites, the, the Kohathites stop for a night, start unpacking the tabernacle, setting stuff up. Work all through the night. Morning comes. Huh. Pack it back up. Follow the Lord. When He stopped, they stopped. When He moved, they moved. They did not move until He moved. And when He stopped, they would stop. They did not make a single move apart from the clear leading of God Himself. To push the point even further, back in Exodus chapter 13 when they started out, it says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. Now think about that. What was the most practical, straightforward way to get to Sinai? Go by the land of the Philistines. It's quick, it's easy. Anybody making this trip would go this way. This is the way you go. Nope. God did not lead His people that way because He had more in mind for them than just quick and easy. He was concerned for their overall safety, their overall well-being. He was actually concerned that they stick with Him and follow Him. So again, the, here's the principle. The Christian, having been reoriented toward the mind of God revealed in the Scriptures looks to God's revelation to set the pace at every point. When He moves, we move. When He stops, we stop. If He doesn't move, we don't move. And this isn't some mystical crystal ball thing where we're trying to find the hidden will of God. No, we take our cues from the Word of God, the revelation of God in His Word. We start with God's Word rather than simply deferring to God's Word after setting out with our own natural presuppositions. Again, even when it seems like we already know, even when it seems like the most rational thing to do is just to go by the land of the Philistines, we don't, we don't do that. We start with God. We acknowledge God. I'm about to move. God, what do I do? Give me leadership here. To give another example, a specific example of an individual, we can look at David. 
as he's compared against the backdrop of Saul, his predecessor. David in Scripture is called a man after God's own heart. That doesn't mean that he attained to something nobody else will ever attain to. That means he was like what we are all after. He, he was there. We, we should all be aspiring to be men and women after God's own heart. But where did that idea originate? It didn't start with people looking back and describing David. It started with describing some unknown character in contrast to Saul. Saul was the opposite. Saul was not a man after God's own heart. Saul shows us exactly what not to do on two different occasions. 1 Samuel 13, the Philistines have gathered for war. The Israelites are afraid. They're waiting for Samuel to come to make a sacrifice so that they can get the blessing of the Lord to go into battle. Saul waits seven days. Samuel doesn't arrive. Saul says, hey, we've got to have the blessing of the Lord. He offers the sacrifice. He didn't wait. He goes ahead rather than waiting. And then two chapters later in 1 Samuel 15, they're fighting against the Amalekites. They're commanded, kill everything. Don't leave a breathing lung in the land. What do they do? Spare Agag. Spare the best of the animals. For what purpose? What was Saul's excuse? Well, we wanted to sacrifice it to God. We just want to worship God. Which seems like a very appropriate thing to do. We've just won the battle. Let's offer worship to God. But what does Samuel say? And this is a very well-known passage in 1 Samuel 15. Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, apparent worship, attempts at being spiritual? Does the Lord has, have as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, He has rejected you from being king. Now notice the comparisons here between what God desires and what God hates. God wants them to obey. To listen, this is step number one, listen and then obey, number two. But what had they done? The contrast is with rebellion and presumption, but what's the order? They presumed, and then they rebelled. And we typically only focus on obey and don't rebel, but the, the root of, of Saul's problem, which led to rebellion rather than obedience, in both of these scenes is presumption, stubbornness. Presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. The idea of the word literally means to urge yourself. To push yourself, your opinions, your ideas, your plans into the mix. To push yourself into the equation rather than simply receiving from God what ought to be done. Saul presumed that he knew what ought to be done. That's presumption. I believe I should do this or that. What does God say? Presumption is as idolatry. It's worshiping a different God. Now... Who's the God in the scenario? If you're urging yourself, who's the God? You are. You're worshiping yourself. Now in contrast to all of that, what does God seek? I seek a man after my heart. Men and women after my heart who will seek me, who will start with me. That's what I want. Not what makes sense, not what is easiest, not what is most rational, not what you've done before. Just seek me. That's what God wants. 
God desires men and women who will say, I flatly reject the thinking of this world. I refuse to assume that my natural inclinations are correct. I will not move until I have received instruction from the Lord. I will not presume to know the way. You get the picture? He moves, we move. He stops, we stop. Now how far does this go? Back to Proverbs. In all your ways. Everything. This goes for everything. What are your plans for tomorrow morning? Did you consult the Lord on that? You say, well, I'm going to go to work. Okay. Did you consult the Lord on that? Well, you know, the Bible teaches if a man doesn't work, a man doesn't eat. Okay, good. It's a good start. Okay. Did you consult the Lord about where you're going to work? Did you consult the Lord about how you're going to get there tomorrow morning? You say, well, I'm going to drive my car on the right side of the road like everybody else. Okay. Did you acknowledge the Lord in that, in, that, in making that decision? To which you respond, okay, now it's getting weird, right? What's another option? The left side of the road? See, we're not assuming in this that every action is going to change. We're assuming that the Christian acknowledges God in all their ways, and in so doing, they have their paths made straight. I'm not saying that God's going to come to you in a dream and say, drive on the left side of the road. Maybe you will brush your teeth in the morning, like everybody else, hopefully. But having consulted the Lord, you'll do it with different motives than before. Maybe you will drive on the right side of the road on the way to work, but you'll have honored the Lord by allowing Him to establish your reasoning. Well, everybody drives on the right side. That's not enough for the believer. The Lord establishes our reasonings. In many areas, we might do exactly what other people are doing, but we will have entirely different reasons for why we're doing it because we've gone to the Word first. We very often think that the outcome or the change is the point. It's not the point. The point is a people who acknowledge God, who start with God, who are after God's heart. And at the same time, there will be many areas in which much of the way that we conduct ourselves in society will look very different. Very different. You say, well, that's already sort of the case Right, but, but what happens? We establish our own paths and we walk with our heads held high arrogantly before men because we have made our paths straight rather than consulting the Lord. You know what happens when you consult the Lord on a matter and He changes the way you live and you realize that every step you're taking has to be mapped out by Him or you will fall? You walk humbly because you're not God anymore. We will walk humbly knowing that we've not acted in presumption, that there is another outside of us who's dictating every move of our lives. Do you realize how arrogant we are to live and breathe and act in this world without consulting the Lord on every matter? Who do you think you are? I'm just going to wake up and do what I did Friday. Now that sounds extreme. 
it's always exciting when you find somebody who's smarter than you who says kind of what you're saying. Let me read to you from uh, Charles Bridges' comments on Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Take one step at a time, every step under divine warrant and direction. Ever plan for yourself in simple dependence on God. It is nothing less than self-idolatry to conceive that we can carry on even the ordinary matters of the day without His counsel. He loves to be consulted. Therefore, take all thy difficulties to be resolved by Him. Be in the habit of going to Him in the first place. Before self-will, that's presumption. Before self-will, self-pleasing, self-wisdom, human friends, convenience, expediency. We could even add commentary on the Proverbs. Before any of that, before any of these have been consulted, go to God at once. Consider no circumstance too clear to need His direction. Now, if you walk by that rule, you're going to look differently than the world. Now, is this going to make life easier for you? No. This will bring us into more conflict than the world than we have ever known before. But you'll experience an inner peace with God unlike anything you've ever known before. There won't be a constant tug of a guilty conscience. There won't be the never-ending quest for taking sides or finding some popular teacher to, to support what you're saying or what you believe or telling you what to do or what to believe or how to behave. There might even be differences of actions in this room. And yet we'll be at perfect peace with one another and with God because we can trust. I can trust. I've sought the Lord. I have started with the book. So take this as your principle. I'm going to put words in your mouth. As a Christian, having undergone a radical reorientation of every faculty of my inner man towards the mind of God revealed in the Scriptures... I will look to God's revelation to set the pace for my life at every point. Before self-will, self-pleasing, self-wisdom, human friends, convenience, or expediency, I will go to God. I now consider no circumstance in my life too clear or simple or mundane or obvious to need His direction. And again, if you'll do that, you'll look very different from the world. Now I realize that what I'm saying sort of sparks some questions and some, some objections. What, what does this actually look like practically? Things that came to my mind while I was wrestling with this very thing. The first one is more of a remnant of that old worldview. Here's the first question. Since I've been born again, isn't my first inclination always right? Isn't, isn't it true that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom? Will I not feel some immediate pressing conviction if, if I'm about to do wrong since I've been regenerated? Well, that, that idea assumes that the, the first work of regeneration is the totality of sanctification as well. That because you've been born again, you all of a sudden know everything. And that's not the case. We have corruption remaining in us. If this were true, then the imperatives of Scripture are needless for the saints because we have the Spirit. If this were true, all of the Bible is useless to us because the Spirit doesn't use that means we've got the Spirit, we have the anointing, I don't need to be taught, I just live and He'll tell me what... No, that's not true. When we realize that regeneration is not the completed work, that corruption remains within our members, that the Scriptures are 
means used by the Spirit to renew our minds, then we recognize that just because we've been born again, that in no way implies that we know all that there is to know about how to live a godly life. So no, your first inclination is not always right simply because you've been born again. Second one, isn't this legalism? And I'm fine with being receiving that label. There are two kinds of legalism in Scripture. There is the, the kind where you make up extra biblical commandments. And then there's the kind where you take the real biblical commandments and you say, if you do this, you'll be justified before God. I've not said either of those things. Allowing the Word of God to inform you at every point is not extra biblical. That's exactly biblical. And all of this, again, is assuming justification in light of the imputed righteousness of Christ, God's distinguishing work in us from the outset. And usually that kind of response, isn't this legalism, comes from that same we're not under law crowd. They don't understand that for the believer, the law of God, the commands of God are holy and righteous and good and they are not burdensome in the least. They cannot conceive of our worldview. They don't understand it. How can it be? We say, we love the law of God. We meditate on the law of our Lord day and night. So no, it's not legalism. But some people may give that accusation. Number three, does this mean that I keep my Bible with me like a translator in a foreign country and pull it out before every decision that I make? To that I would respond, yes and no. No, you shouldn't feel the need to peruse the concordance of the Scriptures before turning at a stoplight or walking through every door, or leaving a tip at a restaurant. But yes, Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So maybe you don't keep a physical copy with you, but we should always be working to store up a, a mental and spiritual copy of the Word of God. And we pull that out before every decision that we make. Number four, will this not impede the process of everything that I do? Is this not going to slow everything down if I take a step and consider, and a step and consider, again, I'd say yes and no. Yes, this should cause some serious reevaluation of your whole life. And that might mean that some things you have on the horizon, they get put on the back burner until you've worked it out. But let's not assume that slowing down is a bad thing. That's not bad. But I would say no in the sense that very often once a solid groundwork is laid and this worldview is adopted, your life will begin to be restructured in a lot of ways that you don't have to go back and check because God's Word has not changed. Now there may be situations like David in 2 Samuel 5. The Philistines have gathered. He inquires of the Lord. Yes, go up. Then they gather again. He doesn't go up. He inquires of the Lord again. And what does God say? No, don't go up. Go around the back. It's different. Now, some people might would assume, well, God, you told me to go up the last time. It's probably the same thing. Same people. Same army. Let's just... No, not David. He's a man after God's heart. I want God's heart on the matter. So, it might slow some things down and it might not. Number five, will this not add stress to my life? Isn't this just another thing that I have to worry about? No. This is the only thing you have to worry about. Literally the only thing. And remember, you keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because He trusts in you. The reason that we imagine stress is because we're already stressed. 
And the reason that we're already stressed is because we're already trying to walk this tightrope and juggle godliness over here and our presumption over here and we, we're not finding peace. We, we run ahead without God. We create our own problems and then we try to be spiritual and clean up the mess using the same dirty mop that we knocked the bucket over with. It, it doesn't work. We have to revert back to before the mess. Back to the bedrock. Where am I starting? And I would say if God's Word is true and God is not a liar, then He will keep you in perfect peace. Number six, isn't this being kind of nitpicky? Aren't we being a little silly about bringing every little thing to God, evaluating everything, assessing every little thing? Take an inventory right quick. How are you doing right now at keeping your mind stayed on God? If you had to rate yourself on a scale of 1 to 10, how are you doing? How are you doing at setting your mind on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth? How are you doing at obeying Philippians 4.8? Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Every one of us would say, man, there, there's, there's so many... Areas, so many times in my life where that's just not true. I'm just, I'm everywhere. These things we know that we should be doing, and yet we struggle to actually do it, and in the back of our minds, we think that they're actually impossible. It's just a nitpicky spiritual platitude. Set your minds on things above and not on things that are on the earth. No, God's not playing. But we recognize in ourselves that we can't do it. We're not doing it. And we, we ask, how is that even realistic in this life? Answer, bring everything to God. Your mind will be fixed. You will be stayed. Is this de- being nitpicky? Maybe. But holiness is nitpicky. Number seven. Is God really that concerned about the little details of my life? Absolutely. Absolutely. Just as any earthly father would be concerned about his child. Your shoe's untied. Your shoes are on the wrong feet. Your shirt's on backwards. Your breath stinks. Your fingernails are dirty. Brush your teeth. You need a haircut. Constant. Boom, boom, boom. Every little thing. Why? Because we want them to not stay where they are, but to grow up to maturity. If we do this, If I am concerned about every little detail of the lives of every single one of my children, as evil as I am, is God not concerned about every detail of our lives? The real question should be, are you not concerned about the details? Do you not desire to live a life in full confidence that every move you're making is pleasing to God? Do you not desire to pray like David in Psalm 7, 8? Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Don't you want to pray that way? We read those things and we say, He's arrogant or He's self-righteous or He's talking about the imputed righteousness of Christ. No, He's talking about His righteousness. Judge me. I'm seeking your heart. I know it. You spoke. Judge me. We can't pray in boldness like David can. Because... We're not seeking Him because we believe there are some details that God doesn't actually care about. 
Isn't it arrogant and prideful and self-righteous to pray this way and to speak this way? No, because it is God who distinguishes His people. And He does so first internally by His own Spirit. So let's apply this very, very briefly. Number one, consider how this will look in your life. Just think about it. Hopefully, maybe one of those questions you were thinking, this is going to really slow things down, or this is going to add a lot of stress, or this is going to, what do I, if you're thinking that way, good. You're thinking, what does this actually look like? So I want you to do that. Consider how this will look. What are your plans for the week? What are your plans for tomorrow morning? Have you sought the Lord on the matter? Have you taken it to His Word and sought His mind? You're probably like me. You've already got alarms set in your phone. Did you ask Him if that's acceptable? And if not, why not? Do you believe that He's unconcerned? Then you need to study the fatherly love of God. Do you believe that you're wise enough on your own? Then you need to study your own depravity. Do you believe that that particular area of your life is off limits to God? Then you need to study His absolute Lordship over all things. Here's a great test. Take the most significant thing that you've got coming up on the horizon and ask the Lord, Father, do you want me to do that? Father, do you want me to be around this person? Father, do you want me to make this purchase? Father, do you want me to work this job? See, some of you right now, when you start thinking about that, you already know what the thing is. You already know that you don't want to bring God in on the matter because your conscience is already pricked about it. He's already convicted you and you're afraid of what He'll say, so you invent a new doctrine. God is not concerned about blank in my life. You're already in sin. Why is it that we're so afraid to acknowledge God in all of our ways? Because in most of our ways, we have established ourselves. They're easy. They're habitual. They make life run smoothly. They insulate us from all suffering and affliction. And because we've gone ahead without God, and we know that if I stop and acknowledge God, He might say, cut it out. And it might make things difficult. So consider how this might look for you. And then do it. And then lastly, as always, we must consider Jesus Christ. Think of Christ. His life is the perfect, eternally satisfying righteousness offered to God in our place, right? The Father is eternally pleased with what Christ has accomplished, right? Have I described anything beyond the fundamental worldview of the man Christ Jesus? Have I gone anywhere beyond Christ Himself? In what you know of Christ, have I not simply described the worldview of Jesus? John 4.34, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. John 6.38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Can you imagine Jesus Christ making one step apart from acknowledging the will of His Father? Not one. One trip across the Sea of Galilee, not one. Picking one man, one conversation, one teaching. You can't imagine it. You can't imagine Jesus saying, Oh, now you're being a little obsessive. Now you're, being a little, you're going a little too far. You can't do it. 
Now, can you imagine a man more at odds with the world than the man Jesus? Not one. Can you imagine a man more at peace with God than Jesus? Not one. Not one. Do you not find this overwhelmingly attractive? When you think of the man Christ Jesus, does your soul not crawl out of your body and say, I want to be like that? Somebody please explain to me how to be like this man. What did he, what was the, if we describe his whole righteousness, his whole life, what was it? Fulfill all righteousness. He simply obeyed God. We could summarize all of Christ's life in ten commands. What did he do? He obeyed the moral law of God perfectly at every point. That's what makes him, makes him attractive. If you're a Christian, you're being made into his image. And your best bet is to fix your eyes upon him. When he moves, you move. When he stops, you stop. And if we'll do that, we will be distinguished from the world. Very different, very at odds, and yet at perfect peace. We wonder how can the martyrs and the, the saints of old suffer the way they did? How can they go to the stake the way they did? How can they die the way they did? With, at perfect peace, singing. Most of us don't even drive down the road with enough peace to sing a song. These people walk into the flames singing. How can it be? Because every step was lined out by God. They had nothing to fear. Nothing. We want it, but we don't want it. Right? Everybody wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to die. This, this, this is what it means. When you die, when we're crucified to the world and the world to us, this is what it means. I'm, I'm done. I'm done calling my own shots. Come to the Word. Let it be the bedrock. Well, as we come to the table, we consider the cross of Christ, and I would ask you, what would be more contrary to human reasoning when justice ought to be served against wicked and rebellious creatures. What's more contrary to human reasoning than for God to send His own Son to take upon Himself the flesh of those creatures, to live, to earn a righteousness that they had not earned, to die, to pay for the sins that they had committed and would continue to commit in order to bring us to God? What's more contrary to human... What would we say? What would we say? Damn them all. Get rid of them. What purpose will they serve in this kingdom? What will they add to you, holy God? What good are these creatures for you? God is unlike us. His reasoning and His ways are not like our ways. So when we think of the cross, we consider of another one of those places where our, our thoughts and our reasoning just they, they don't add up. We're reminded again that we do not think like God. We know because of the eternal conscious torment of those in hell that that would not satisfy justice. For a, for a thousand eternities, those in hell will never satisfy justice. And that's why they must continue. And yet we know that Christ suffered and for in a few short hours extinguished the wrath of God and satisfied Him, the Father looks for nothing more to be pleased. He's not looking for anything else. He's done. He's done looking. 
Christ has brought in everlasting righteousness. That's what happened on the cross. So as we come to the Lord's table, which we do believe is a means of grace, let's ask for, for grace, that the Spirit would work in us a resolution, a resolve, uh, the grace of self-denial and resolution. The Spirit has to work this in us. I will not follow my ways. I will resolve to seek the Lord. He gives that through His grace and through the means. So let's pray that and, and consider the cross of Christ and then we'll come to the table together.